content warning. This episode of Black Girl Watching contains talk of sexual assault, rape, and other violence against women. Please proceed with care. Deeper in the mountainous forest lives a nine-tailed fox spirit called the Kuniho. The spirit can be summoned into the form of a beautiful woman to avenge the wrong done by men. Welcome back to Black Girl Watching, where we break down your favorite films and TV shows. I'm Brooke Obi, film critic, writer, editor, and screenwriter. And I'm Brittany Danielle, writer, editor, and cultural critic who loves, loves, loves watching and reading Black art. And today we're super excited to talk about Lovecraft Country, episode six, Meet Me in Pegu. Yes. And so if you want to join along on this conversation, definitely use the hashtag Black Girl Watching on Instagram and on Twitter. And you can also tweet us at BLKGRL Watching to share your thoughts, ask your questions, let us know your theories, all of that stuff. We want to hear from you. Um, definitely hit us up on BlackGirlWatching.com as well. We'd love to hear from you. Y'all, we have a very special guest with us today. We have Juhyun Park, who is a poet and essayist who who wrote the definitive analysis of Bong Joon-ho's Oscar-winning movie, Parasite. Jihun's essay, Reading Colonialism in Parasite, on tropicsofmeta.com, analyzes Parasite in the context of the history of American colonialism in South Korea and South Korea's neoliberal and neocolonial present. I've been a huge fan ever since I read this piece. And when I saw Lovecraft Country episode six and how it implicates American militarism and colonialism in South Korea, somewhat like Parasite does, we're going to discuss whether or not uh, the episode goes far enough in that portrayal. But because of Jihyun's expertise and the depth of analysis and historical context that they provided in this essay, I really was so curious to know what they thought about this episode and what this episode is trying to tell us. So we're so excited to have them here with us and to have this talk about episode six with them. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Black Girl Watching, Chuyen. Hi, thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having us. And as every episode, we are diving deep into episode six. So if you have not seen episode six, or the other episodes before it, pause this podcast, watch the show, and then come back because we are talking about every single detail. Spoilers are on the way. Yep. So let's get into it. What were your first reactions? What did you think when you saw episode six? Well, when I sat down to watch it, I had pretty freshly watched episode five, pretty mortified by what I had seen. Um, And uh, I guess I was kind of in a place where I felt like the show that seemed really promising at the pilot was starting to like fall apart pretty quickly. Um, so I can't say like my expectations were too high. I was kind of feeling like when I saw the title card, Meet Me in Tegu, I was like, all right, this is going to be probably about, you know, Tick's background in Korea. Um, I was very prepared for a train wreck just because any kind of film or shows that talk about Korea, especially the Korean War, are very few and far between. Um, and usually what's out there is not great. By the end of the episode, I wasn't like, disappointed in my expectations i kind of felt like it felt a little contradictory like on the one hand um the entire thing was in korean which was not something that i don't think i've ever seen on hbo or a major american network in the past um 
it seemed like fairly decently researched in terms of like their effort to make their characters seem believable um, and also like true to the historical record um, to a certain degree. I felt like there were a lot of topics that were broached that I just didn't expect at all. Like, you know, even talking about um, the kind of depths of anti-communist violence that were going through South Korean society at that time um, was just not something that I expected to see on the screen period. Uh, That said, I feel like this is a show that in general, I think needed like another year of like planning and preparation in some ways. And so, you know, the parts of the show that feel like undercooked in general, like kind of that kind of came up for me uh, in this episode as well. And I think uh, it's definitely really interesting um, to think about it and talk about it because uh, it does bring so much new um, in terms of like talking about Korea um, in US TV, um, but also like, doesn't necessarily stick every single landing that it attempts, I would say. Mm. And we'll, we definitely have to shout out um, Kevin Lau, who's the co-writer of this episode. I'm sure he had quite a bit to do with the research that went into bringing Tegu to life as well. Brittany, what did you think of this episode? I enjoyed the episode, but I was really not confused, but it, it just felt like a departure from the journey that we were on. And I know that they're probably, or hopefully going to tie things up by the end of the season, but it just felt like, okay, I know we have been here talking about that this episode or this this series is an anthology, but I don't think that that's what they intended it to be. And I know it's a little bit maybe unfair to compare it to Watchmen, which is another HBO series that's also dealing with a war in Asia. And in the sense of Watchmen, it's the Vietnam War. In the sense of Lovecraft, it's the Korean War. But it just felt... I I was thrown for a little bit of a loop and I was here for it because I'm not opposed to having to deal with subtitles because I watch a lot of foreign films and shows anyway. But in terms of this show, it felt like we were going somewhere and then somebody grabbed the wheel and we detoured somewhere else. So we're not going where I personally think we should be going which is telling this story in a cohes- in a cohesive way that makes sense i think there is a way to incorporate all of these elements i really appreciated taking this side trip to korea it really highlighted the fact that i don't know anything about the korean war actually like i know zero things we hear about other wars here in america and i don't spend my time trying to research america's exploits via war because i'm black and their war on us is enough for me but it kind of indicted me to the fact that oh look you need to learn more about what we did in korea you need to learn more about what we've done throughout the war and that's what this episode did to me more than anything that popped up narratively or more than anything that popped up on the screen it was like oh look you need to go back and research the Korean War <laughs> and what that was all about and why we got into it uh, who who were the players what was the purpose and that's where I'm at right now 
I do think that it is an indictment, definitely on America, but also like on all of us, because it it might be easy to be like, oh, well, we're black and we don't really feel American either. But Tick and some other soldiers that were there in Korea were also black and they also enacted violence. So we do play a role in this. So it is actually, it, it, it is our responsibility. So I think if that's something that comes out of this episode, I think that's probably a really good thing that we start educating ourselves on um, our own complicity and how that has impacted people, you know, around the world. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned Watchmen too, because and I know people have been comparing these two shows from the beginning and whether which one was better. And at first it was Lovecraft is way better than Watchmen. And then now that's kind of starting to falter. But you know what? I'm still riding with Lovecraft on this one because at least Lovecraft is not told from the lens of the colonizers. You know what I'm saying? Like Sister Knight was a police officer. Like, you know, she was you know, a part of this American imperialist system and she didn't see any problem with it at all. Like, I'm not convinced that even at the end of this series, she was like, oh, this is our problem, you know? So her and her, like that weird romance that she had with the imperialist God, it was super problematic for me. So I actually really appreciated being in Korea. I love these subtitles. Like, yes, Misha, make me read. I love foreign films too. So I don't know. I think ever since episode three, which was the Haunted House episode, we had the Indiana Jones episode, and then we had the body horror episode. I like the idea of trying out all these different genres in one show, um, but I also like Cloud Atlas. And so maybe that is also an issue that I have because nobody likes Cloud Atlas. But, you know, I like the mishmash of, of genres together. So, you know, it was very interesting for me. And what I also love was it kind of went back to, even though I hate Christina and Christina is the devil and nothing that she does is ever going to be good in my eyes. But what she told Letty, what was that in the beginning of episode four, that Tick is not the center of the universe? Thank you. Like, I really appreciated the vast majority of this episode. We just see Gia and what Gia's life is and trying to figure out what life was like in 1949 and 1950 to be occupied by American soldiers. And, you know, Tick comes in at the end. So we see the connection to what the rest of the story is going to be. But He's not the center of the story. And again, he's kind of a jerk. I was glad to get a break from Tick because he's getting on my nerves. Yeah. And for Tick, I think it is, he has this hero complex that's pretty obvious throughout the series. I think he is annoying in the fact that he, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to save his people, his people being his family and the people that he care about, not black people in general but like one of the things i was blown back about is that tick volunteered to be in the service and i you know so again sorry for my lack of u.s history i'm under the impression that people just were drafted okay like i thought everybody who ended up in the service like they ended up there because their number was called and they were drafted. I have an uncle, or I'm sorry, a great uncle who was drafted for Vietnam and was killed. And so, like, in my mind, everybody who ends up, particularly Black folks, 
who end up in the armed services in that particular era from whenever we were allowed to enlist, probably clear through the 70s, were drafted for this service. And to learn that Tick volunteered made me feel some type of way about him. His dad, who he has this super contentious relationship with, is so against it. So he volunteers, but like, Bruh, why would you volunteer for this? Like, that makes me feel some type of way about Tick. I can't... The shoulder, the shoulders will not distract me from him volunteering right. I mean, to he, kill people in other countries. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, great shoulders, great cheekbones. It's true. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that was an interesting detail. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, in that scene, like, there was another soldier saying that he had been drafted. Um, yeah. who, who I think was an Asian American soldier. Um, don't remember quite exactly. Uh, I thought he was South Korean. I know he was American. I just thought he was South Korean um, by like ethnically. Because he was saying like, oh, you know, they won't, you know, I, I'm not accepted here and I'm not accepted in America either. Like there's a word because he, he was speaking fluently with um, Gia. Oh, like as a Korean person. Uh, it's it's possible. There weren't a ton of Koreans in the U.S. at the time is the thing. Um, um, but Brittany, the point you raised around um, enlistment versus um, being drafted, uh, what I do know is that um, like the Vietnam War was like really the situation where I think um, the draft kind of like escalated to a degree that like it hadn't quite uh, in Korea. I mean, the U.S. definitely deployed like tens of thousands of people to go fight in Korea and a good number of them were drafted but it also was kind of like riding the wave of like you know post-world war ii and like you know tons of men had already been drafted already enlisted a lot of those men were not required to like serve again but like you know definitely there were re-enlistments there was kind of like a military culture of you know this entire generation of men and you know like if you were like five ten years younger than the soldiers that fought in world war ii then you know this was your opportunity so i think um for the korean war at least like um there was definitely draft elements going on, but also like a lot of enlistment because, you know, it was kind of seen as like, uh, like I said, like, you know, the, like your opportunity, your generation's chance to like, you know, get out there and uh, partake in the glory and also, you know, be part of some great historic struggles. So. Right. And I, so the relationship between Tick and um, this other soldier that was drafted, I thought was really interesting too. their friendship, because it also reminded me of Watchmen in the sense that that is what should have happened. Like there should have been a camaraderie. There should have been a joint struggle between Sister Knight and Lady True. They should have combined their interests. You know, they should have been fighting the imperialist Americans together, you know, and that was a huge missed opportunity. I thought from Watchmen, I just thought that was just like, you know, why, how did we make Lady True the bad person here? How did she become the villain, you know, that sh- that needs to be destroyed at all? Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Like, that really didn't sit well f- with me. And so I think by bringing and, and focusing um, in South Korea and focusing on Gia and seeing the thread of Gia's character throughout the episodes, even if, you know, this is the most that we have seen of Gia since the beginning, um, I am hoping that there is some space for some solidarity here. Um, so as, you know, Tick is focused on taking down the white supremacists, that that will have like, 
you know, a, a global implication because I do think that should be the point, you know, especially as he's trying to redeem himself for the horrible things that we find out that he did in South Korea in this episode. You know, and I think it's a pretty good message for us, like in the present too. Like we need to be concerned about global struggle and like how these dots connect and how we can combine our efforts um, to to fight these same enemies um, as a collective. So, and so again, I talk to talk about like how Gia, even though we're just now meeting Gia, we have actually seen Gia and heard Gia um, before in the series, um, all throughout the series, including the opening scene of the series when Tick is, he's dreaming um, on the bus and he is in the trenches. He's back in Korea. He's fighting enemies that are uh, human and also alien. And there is an alien that descends from the sky out of, out of this UFO. And that's Gia. And Gia kind of in the middle of all this chaos, she wraps her arms around Tick and gives him comfort and like love in this, in the middle of all the chaos that's happening around him as this like multi was it the Shoggoth um, Lovecraft's monster with all the tentacles tries to attack him and Jackie Robinson saves him and he wakes up so I think um, Misha Green the showrunner and creator was telling us that that first scene is basically foreshadowing for the whole series so I do think that kind of comes into play like as he's in Korea and in this you know horrible state of mind and state of being. Um, he has a moment of love with somebody who may not be human um, as, we're, as we're learning about Gia. And so then I think in the middle of that first episode too, on the phone, he calls Gia. We don't really know why he calls Gia. I guess he gets back to Chicago um, and it's kind of the first person that he wants to call. So he calls her in South Korea. She knows that it's him without him saying anything, probably because this is the only person that she would know to be calling her from Chicago. And she says, you went home. You shouldn't have done that. How would she know? There was no caller I- ID in, <laughs> in 1955. Like, how would the she operator, know before talking The operator to told him? her she got a call from Chicago, I would imagine. Oh, I don't think she knows so many people what? in Chicago. Because he, you know, the operator said, oh, you want to call South Korea? Okay. And, she, and he was like, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you that. Also, how much was that call? That call was like $500. <laughs> so... So we have that phone call. We have that kind of warning. Like he knows that he, that there's somebody in South Korea who is telling him he should not have come back to Chicago. Um, so we know something bad's going to happen. And then we find out the bad thing that happens. His dad's been kidnapped. They're all kind of stuck in this, uh, the, in the original lodge of the Order of the Ancient Dawn. Um, uh, and then the Braithwaites put a spell on Tick and George and Letty inside of their individual rooms. And they want to get inside their heads and make them doubt themselves and each other. And so this is the time where Tick has a vision. And the vision is of Gia. She's wearing combat clothing and she's trying to kill him. And she's like doing a pretty good job. She like stabs him a bunch. And he at first says, I don't want to hurt you. But it really doesn't take him that long to get extremely violent with her. And he kills her. And it just kind of like reminds him of what he's capable of. That he's capable of violence against women, even if he can kind of consider that. And and murder, even if he can consider that kind of like self-defense or whatever. As he later goes on to defend his actions in this episode. I mean, if somebody is actively trying to kill you. I, I, I'm, I'm here for all the tick slander, by the way. But... 
if somebody is, is actively trying to kill you and you don't necessarily realize it's this weird magical vision because he wasn't, you know, this is sort of the first time they're all exposed to it. I'm not going to hold it against him that he reacts in a way that is like fight energy. I think the point of it, it's not that he wasn't in, in mortal danger. I think the point was, and the point for the white supremacists, the wizards that put the spell on him in the first place was to show him what he's capable of. And that's what he's been ashamed of. And that's kind of the shame that he's been carrying. And he talks about this a lot in episode five, um, when he's having the conversation with Letty about how he was in love with this woman. Her name was Gia, but it quote ended in a strange way. And I think that that is a really interesting way to put that. But anyway, he was saying that he didn't know if what he had with Gia was love and then at the end of episode five, he decodes some of the language of Adam and it says die. And then he calls Gia, but this time he's got the words to speak. He's not afraid. And he's like, how did you know? And she says, you believe me now? And he repeats, how did you know? And she said, you should have listened to me. And then he says, what are you? And then she hangs up the phone this time. And then episode six is all about who and what Gia is. We start off in South Korea and we start off in a movie theater and we meet Gia and she's watching Judy Garland, which like relatable girl, like I feel like Judy Garland is the connector of all cultures. Who doesn't love Judy Garland? It's interesting what you said. Judy Garland is like the great uniter of cultures. I think it's um, what we see here is uh, really that, you know, Judy Garland was like at a particular time in Hollywood, right? Where, you know, um, Hollywood was really, uh, really important cultural product and an export for the United States to like, you know, um, export soft power abroad and to kind of like build international consensus for, you know, the U the new uh, US dominated order. So, I mean, like Judy Garland is definitely like the United of cultures in that sense, but, you know, like also that, that unity and like the actual like production and distribution of um, those kinds of films uh, is, you know, like tied to these other historical processes that Korea is definitely, um, was really a um, was really a central uh, node for you know um, at this period of time. Yeah, I mean, I guess just in terms of like getting like settled into like the world of Tegu as they imagined it. Um, I think I don't know this for sure, but I think that there's a SAG rule about like um, hiring people in union, which I think ends up affecting most um, U.S. Uh, produced um films and like tv that attempt to like include foreign language um oftentimes because they have to get people who are like uh like second or third generation living in the united states who may not necessarily like you know sound like someone who is from their home country so um <laughs> when uh everything got started i was kind of sitting there thinking like they don't really sound like they're from tegu exactly but um you know i was kind of still um impressed nonetheless that like this was looking to be like a mostly uh korean language episode uh which i think is kind of like new territory in a lot of ways for us tv um so yeah i guess like you know kind of like as we like sort of move through things um i kind of found that um i guess like on the one hand, it was, it's so well, re it's researched well in a lot of different ways. Like there's many elements of like uh, Korean culture that like they incorporate that are like appropriate for the era and things like that. Um, and yet, you know, like I found that, you know, for 
an episode that's like set during the war, it's very interesting that like the amount of actual war that we see is pretty limited um, to, you know, like what we see Tick and Gia like particularly being involved with. Um, I'm thinking like that moment where Chia and some of the other nurses are like brought out into the field and, you know, they're interrogated and then two of them end up being shot. I think Tick shot one of them. Um, Was it Tick? I closed yeah, I my he, eyes. He, yeah, I think there was one soldier who shot one person, and I think it was Tick that shot the best friend. Yeah, Tick, Tick definitely murdered um, Jana's best friend. Um, the the woman that we see previously talking about being a communist. Like again, I felt so uneducated <laughs> because I'm like, I don't even know what the Korean War was about. And well, you know, North Korea was allied with the Soviet Union and there were communists and the United States was trying to contain communism and so uh, occupied South Korea to prevent, you know, North Korea and the Soviet Union from... Yeah, um, I got... I have that part, but I know, you know, I I think as Americans, and I don't even identify... It's so funny. I don't even identify as an American. Um, I'm black. And so (laughs) I don't... I guess if somebody pushed me, I'm a black American, but like, you know, whatever. Um, As an American, I don't think a lot of us know what all of these wars and conflicts are really about. Because we lost. We well, we lost that one. <laughs> you know, we're always talking about World War II because that's when the United States became a superpower. So you know, yeah, no, we um, don't learn about. I know that you know South Korea is a country. I know that North Korea is a country. I know that there is this um, conflict between the two countries that used to be one country, and I know that there are people who want them to be reunited into one country so like this episode of lovecraft is forcing me to use my fingers to google like about the history of korea as a whole the korean i guess diaspora not yeah the korean diaspora like how these two countries became two separate countries even though they were one country and how other asian countries have colonized them in the past and how America is doing similarly suited things in the present. And so because we're set in 49 and 50, we can't really get into all of the things, but I wish they would have done a little bit more about those things, if that makes sense. I feel like if they were to do that, then we'd have to see more of Tick and less of Gia. We only kind of see the after effects of war. Um, but also, I mean, I think before the Americans come and, you know, storm the streets and shut down the movie theater and all those kinds of things, um, we do see that Gia works in this hospital that's run by the Japanese. You see the Japanese flag. Um, so what did you think about that? Like, and, and she, you know, her first victim, because um, we haven't even really talked about uh, who Gia is or what Gia is, but her first victim is a Japanese man that she meets at this bar that her mother has instructed that she bring home. And apparently she's brought home several men um, to, to the house um, to, to be her victim based on what the Japanese did to Korean women. Yeah. Um, well, 
you know, that moment where uh, we find out the hospital is Japanese run is pretty consistent with what was going on in South Korea at the time uh, in 1949. So in 1945, um, when Japan was defeated in World War II, they um, had basically gave up um, Korea and uh, Korea had been annexed um, to become a part of Japan in 1910 and like had a really brutal colonial experience uh, during that period. Um, and after, you know, Japan was defeated, you know, Koreans moved to try to organize their own, like our own, like self-governing um, institutions. Um, there was a Korean people's Republic, which was founded, uh, which was basically constituted of different uh, people's assemblies um, and uh, what ended up happening was that, you know, within a few weeks, the U.S. military came in and they basically established their own government, um, let the popularly organized government know that, like, they were no longer in power. Um, and uh, one of the first things that uh, General Hodge, who was uh, leading the U.S. occupation, did was to basically invite back all of the Japanese colonial administrators, um, basically arguing that, you know, he couldn't run the country without them. Um so, you know, like that's could be like some connection uh, to, you know, that actual uh, historical dynamic. Um, and I think that's uh, that's I did think that that was a uh, pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, the choice of Tegu as a city in general is also interesting because Tegu is actually where one of the first um, uprisings against the U.S. military took place in 1946. Um, there was an incident where I believe three students were killed uh, by police and then um, there was like a big police crackdown, but then there was also a counterattack led by um, working class organizers where they actually ended up killing, I think, like close to 40 police officers just in these street battles and things like that. Um, so I think the thing to understand is that, you know, Korea 1945 to 1950 was a very contested place, South Korea especially. Um, and it's was a place where, you know, U.S. military power, the old colonial administration and like kind of more bourgeois conservative South Koreans were sort of like uniting forces to basically crack down on the country and establish um, a pro-capitalist, pro-U.S. government, uh, which by 1949 had been accomplished. Um, so that's kind of the context that, you know, we're, we're getting all of this in. Um, I do have some thoughts on like the way the, the kumihoness of Chia was uh, brought out, but I feel like we're kind of like a little bit on a history kick here. Um, and I feel like, you know, there've been lots of questions about, um, you know, what kind of information may be pertinent to, you know, better understanding the episode. So I'm happy to like go for either of those. Yeah. I mean, everything let's go, let's go for everything. Um, I do definitely want to get into the Kamehameha-ness of this as well, but yeah, like this historical context, I think is really important, particularly the fact that you're, you're saying this is kind of, this is a revolutionary you know, space in history and, and GS actions can be seen as revolutionary as well as anti, you know, imperialist in the targeting of her victims. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, what I was going to say earlier about, um, you know, that particular scene where Tick is involved in the execution of the two nurses, um, that's pretty consistent with what was going on throughout Korea at the time. Like by this point, like this is 1950, the war has started, right? Um, by this point in time, there have been at least three major uprisings in South Korea against the US military or against the newly installed Republic of Korea government, uh, which was brought into power by an election in 1948 that was organized um, basically through the US um, and the United Nations. Um, and what was really 
you know, controversial about that election was that, you know, it's an election to establish a government, but it's only involving half the country, right? Um, so it, to many people, it just was not seen as legitimate. Um, and so, you know, there were three major uprisings that occurred, uh, the most famous of which was in Jeju Island, uh, where, um, you know, tens of thousands of people were uh, killed by um, the uh, Republic of Korea police, by right-wing paramilitaries who were kind of like the early versions of like the Proud Boys that we see, you know, like kind of patrolling the streets of like uh, the United States today. Um, and, you know, also oftentimes with the knowledge and the cooperation of the U.S. military. So, you know, what we're seeing in the sense of that like anti-communist purge and like these executions that Tick is part of is actually like something that was a huge dynamic um, throughout the Korean War. Um, and, you know, actually during the first couple of years of the Korean War, uh, the South Korean president, um, Lee Shing-man, uh, carried out something called the Podol League Massacre, where he basically targeted, it's estimated between 100,000 and 200,000, like, political dissidents, communists, but also just, like, trade unionists, you know, journalists, anyone who basically, like, pissed him off or, like, was kind of potentially a political enemy of his and basically like had these people systematically executed. Um, so, you know, like what, so that's kind of um, what uh, that's hearkening to when, you know, Tick um, and his uh, fellow soldiers execute those two nurses. And also in that earlier scene where we see a mob hanging uh, someone that they're accusing of being a communist. Um, like these are, this was a very real and live element of South Korean society that, you know, um, a lot of bloodshed and also like shape the way the society worked for decades. The lynching too, like that was, that was um, historically accurate. That's what would happen to communists. Well, I don't, I haven't personally read many accounts of like lynchings in the sense of like, we're going to hang this person uh, with a mob, but like there were a lot of um, military units, police units, like both with South Korea and the United States that would basically like carry out these anti-communist purges. Um, anytime there was like a major revolt, like the, there was like a serious crackdown. And so, you know, like kind of the organizing principle of like this idea of a new South Korean society that was like separate from the North Korean one was that, you know, this was not a communist society. And therefore anyone who was a communist or could be accused of being a communist, like basically had to be purged. Um, and so that resulted in like hundreds of thousands of people being killed um, who, you know, were not officially killed in the war in the sense that, you know, they weren't killed by like hostilities between two armies necessarily, right? They were just either being killed by the South Korean or the U.S. military. Um, and, you know, these were civilians, but, you know, because they were either communists or could be accused of being communists, you know, they could be constructed as the enemy. Wow. It was interesting to me to watch the mob doing the lynching because I felt like we like Misha would um, never show a black person being lynched. Um, even though that's what happened all the time in Jim Crow South and this, we haven't seen it yet. And I just don't think that we ever will. So to see it, I don't know. I, I definitely, I, I definitely kind of clock that as, you know, interesting. So, I, I mean, if it's historically accurate and I don't know, it's, it's still, it, it, it hit me. Yeah. What I will say is that, you know, it's, it is like historic, it is historically probable, like historically accurate, um, however we want to term it. But I do think that like, it definitely like picked up a lot more responsibility than I think maybe went into consideration in that artistic uh, decision, right? Because like, for me, like, you know, I know this history, I've like made an effort to like, 
you know, try to really understand what happened in this pretty critical period between when um, the Japanese empire fell and when, you know, the American occupation and the division of Korea happened. Um, and so like, you know, like I can watch this and know that like, oh, this is like connecting with all these real things that happened. But I think that it's entirely possible to watch this episode, not really learn anything necessarily concrete and just kind of like get this vague sense of like, oh, this is really fucked up. There's a lot of things I don't know here. Um, but then they, that may not necessarily lead people towards like actually like uh, understanding or confronting uh, what happened. And I thought that was really interesting for this episode because um, it reminded me of the review that came out about it in um, about the, sh- the first five episodes of the show in the New Yorker by Lauren Michelle Jackson, uh, where she said that one of the chief flaws of the show was how expository it is, right? How much it like feels the need to like kind of explain things to you and kind of hold your hand in a way, especially when it comes to history. Um, I think um, Ruby says like three times in the first few episodes, like, oh, remember that riot that almost happened on the North side last year? Remember that riot that almost happened on the North side last year? Um, and, you know, it was interesting in this Korea episode how like that kind of like, expository style just kind of dried up you know and there wasn't really um the same sort of engagement and so um yeah i definitely like think it's interesting i think that it's kind of tied to like this whole show feeling rushed in a way you know mm-hmm. like because i did i don't feel like i'm picking out this episode and saying like this is like the only bad or the worst episode in the entire series right i feel like this series has been like pretty hit or miss for me personally um so i feel like you know it's kind of like tied up with like that bigger issue in the show, I guess. I think it's worth noting that the first episode, the pilot was shot so far in advance of the rest of the series. Like it was shot, I think back in 2018 um, or 19, like it was, it was shot a long time ago um, and they were kind of using it as to see if it would get picked up or whatever. So I think, you know, between the first episode and the rest of the episode, there were, there was a lot of time in between. And so that could, I don't know, that could explain with some of the, that could explain some of the pacing and the incongruent episodes i don't think so i don't think so because it, it pretty well follows the structure of the book um you know she's taken quite a few liberties with like i mean how the but you don't like portrayed. the book so. i don't like the book but <laughs> i mean i i think the show is an improvement on the book for sure but as far as like the structure i think misha's doing exactly what she wants to do i think whether it's working or not you know we we could talk about it i think we should move into uh and her Kumionis. <laughs> who she is and what her situation is like she's not a person but she's also a person well we see the first glimpse of that like right in the beginning right so Gia's in the theater she's watching Judy Garland the two people that are making out and like want to do more um leave her alone in the theater and so we think that we see her doing this like singing and dancing number but that's all kind of just like it feels like a projection like once we get back to her and actually once we find out what Gia is like we see like that's like what she would like to do but her eyes are completely dead like they're dead they're like glossed over um and we kind of see we see that again as she's like having sex with these different men that she's bringing home at the request of her mother um there's like there she's she's not 
quite alive. So um, yeah, let's let's get into the commandness of this of, of Gia and and whether this is done accurately or you know what what did you think about this? Yeah, so uh, Chia is a kumiho, which is um, basically like a fox demon. Um, there's kind of different varieties of fox demons stories that you find around East Asia. Um, and so like uh, the kumiho, the idea of a kumiho is basically like um, this fox demon that often takes the form of a woman and like uh, will kind of use her seductive powers to like find men to prey on and eat. Um, so that's kind of like the the concept in like Korean myth and folklore that, that they're drawing on. Um, I am not an expert on that by any means. Um, but I do, th- I did note that like they took, they definitely took some liberties with the concept. I think um, the biggest one is that, you know, she doesn't actually turn into a fox at any point. Right. Um, like we never see her in like any kind of fox form. Like she kind of has instead these like furry sort of tentacle things that come out of her face. And then she like her tails, yeah, her tails, um, but they don't really look like tails. They just kind of like latch onto her victims and like kind of penetrate them in this like really interesting sort of erotic way. And then she like kind of, I I gathered like absorbs their life force and just kind of like devours them or something like that. She sees their entire lives um, from birth to death and then she kills them. So we learned from her mother that she has to take I'm guessing a hundred souls. Like she has, she has to take a hundred souls from these men before um, the mother's actual daughter can come back. And you know, the, I, I didn't look up anything about this particular um, spirit until after I watched the episode. So I was like, what is that Fox doing there? But now, (laughs) now that you mention it, I think they tried to, pay homage to this particular you know myth or legend by by including the fox toward the end of the episode when the fox is like in the snow and looking at her like hey we are the same well there's another point too there's in the so right when you know tick she's fallen in love with tick and decided not to kill him and her mother is like oh he's never gonna love you once he finds out what you are and so she kind of takes a moment to like try to like gently explain what a kumiho is. And so she's reading this mythology to him and he's not paying her no attention. He's just kissing up on her neck. And he interrupts her. Yeah, she's her. like, what she reads in this mythology is not, I mean, and I definitely don't know, but I mean, it's not what I read like online about what a kumiho is and like, kind of what the purpose of it is. She says in, in the Lovecraft country mythology that a kumiho is a, a fo- nine-tailed fox spirit who enters into beautiful young women to kill men. The purpose is revenge. What did you know about kumihos and like what their purpose is? Is this kind of um, mythology something that you've kind of heard a lot before? Um, well, like I said, I'm not an expert by any means on Korean mythology. Um, I definitely heard of kumiho before. I would liken it to like, you know, like if you ask like a random American and say, like, do you know what a centaur is? Like, most of them would be like, sure, I've heard of that, but you know, they probably not yeah. going to give you like a a big dissertation yeah. about like the history of centaurs and what they represent or anything. Um, so, <laughs> right. I would say I'm definitely in a similar position. Um, I 
I thought the way that it played out was interesting, um, not because like I was looking for any kind of accuracy around like representing Akumio in a particular way. I kind of just see it as like, you know, um, the show creators are like tapping into this concept. They're going to use it how they're going to use it. Right. Um, and I'm, I guess I was more interested in seeing like, how does it fit into the rest of the story? And I guess what I found was that the Kumiho is like a very, it's kind of a femme fatale character, right? So it's a very like kind of sexually threatening concept. Right. And I think that's very interesting as a choice, um, within the context of the Korean war, particularly for Korean women, when, you know, most of what Korean women faced from, you know, like whether it was either uh, military, like from South Korea or the United States was, you know, a lot of sexual violence. And, you know, that's something that continues in Korea to this day, because, you know, Korea is still occupied by the US military, there is still mandatory uh, military conscription for all Koreans who are assigned male at birth, um, once they reach adulthood. And so, you know, like military violence and sexual violence are very much overlapping in the Korean context. That's really the context we find Chia in. But, you know, by being a kumiho, she is actually the one who is preying on the men. Right. And so there's kind of like this reversal happening, which I think that, uh, that, that idea has a lot of possibilities to it. And I think, you know, kind of like confined within the space of this episode, I sort of felt that like it ended up, it ended up almost distorting the war in a way to me because, you know, because like there is so much of the war that's like hidden from us, even in this episode, it's kind of seemed like the sort of the spectacle of like Chia's sexuality kind of comes into stand in for the spectacle of the war in a way. And, you know, also like uh, her particular status of being a kumiho, of being, you know, this um, kind of mythological creature that preys on men, constructs her as a, as a threat to tick, and then kind of like also becomes the basis through which like their love can be kind of accepted by us as an audience. Because what I found most, um, what I found most confusing about the episode, honestly, was that, you know, one second Tick is like killing her best friend and then 15 minutes later, like they're in love <laughs> in episode time. Yeah, they're in love. And it's like, wait, hold on. Like, you know, like, like I'm, I'm there were a lot of Korean women who ended up married to or had sexual or romantic relationships with U.S. service people that absolutely happened. The first law that actually allowed for the immigration of Asian women to the United States was actually the War Brides Act in 1952, which, you know, like broke with decades of precedent um, in terms of Asian exclusion. This was particularly because of the Korean War and because of the rates of marriage and relationships that were developing. What I'm trying to say here, I guess, is that like when we like look at it all within the actual like actual history, I think that the way that she has a kumiho like kind of creates a lot of convenient plot devices for the sake of the episode, right? I think that it kind of like makes the love possible, gives Tick more of a backstory. But I think that, you know, it also distorts so much of the gender and the sexual politics of the war in a way where like I was kind of left feeling like like there are small like references made like i think there's uh there's a part where chia is like trying to get onto um tick's base and then like she says oh does he think i'm a comfort woman or something um which is a reference to basically hundreds of thousands of korean women who were kidnapped and um you know basically imprisoned in circumstances where they basically had to be like the sexual slaves of Japanese military. And this was actually something that the US military and the South Korean government continued together for decades, not through like the uh, explicit form of like coercion, where they would kidnap people and like basically imprison them. Um, but through like, you know, ensuring that there was always the an availability of, you know, like sex workers, um, for US military service people who, you know, were subjected to like, uh, different kinds of law because you know they lived in camp towns that you know where you know the u.s military was really like kind of um upholding its own rules so 
Um, all to say, like, the gender and sexual con- uh, politics of the Korean War and uh, the occupation are very, very complicated. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of that ended up kind of um, falling backstage uh, to this dynamic, which is interesting and like kind of um, is rooted in like uh, the historical reality of that, but really kind of like took took over the stage in a way that like didn't make um, the actual history very visible. So yeah, that's kind mm. of, I guess, my overall thoughts about it. Okay, that's really interesting too. And we've kind of seen that, we saw this in episode five, like when instead of having a scene where um, Ruby's manager actually sexually assaults or rape Tamra, the black sales clerk, we kind of see like, you know, he's attempting, but doesn't get, you know, the opportunity. Tamra's able to escape and runs away. And then Ruby gets the revenge by, you know, she ends up raping the manager with the, her stiletto. So, you know, I do think there is something that Misha is actually like specifically, uh, intentionally kind of trying to give women back power in, in, in some kind of agency in this space, specifically since, you know, the people that Gia are tar- the people that she's targeting are the Japanese men and the American men who are causing so much sexual violence against Korean women. There's also the note that because um, Gia is not this woman's actual daughter, she's sort of a, I'm guessing, like a. <sighs> recreation of the daughter we get this whole issue about the husband rapist and potentially a murderer i don't know but like we get we get something where that daughter is dead because of the husband's activities which are terrible and the husband has been disposed of and that's why we get gia back um but that's not really super clear. No, I think what what happened, um, I think he was Gia's first victim, actually. So when, you know, the mom knows that Gia is being raped by the mom's husband, um, who specifically, we find out, targeted Gia's mom because Gia's mom was uh, unmarried and she had Gia out of wedlock and that was a shame upon her and the family and everything else. And that he knew that she would be easy, I guess, to manipulate because she didn't want to be, you know, dishonored. And, you know, she wanted some sort of protection for her daughter. Um, but what actually ends up happening is the husband ends up repeatedly, you know, over a period of time, I guess, you know, raping the daughter. Um, and the mom goes, she goes to the woman in the woods. Oh, uh, the mudan? Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, mudang is uh, just a word for shaman. And and tells her, I need to kill this, you know, this husband of mine. And she essentially said, there's going to be a price. And the price ended up being, I'm going to bring a kumeho spirit and put it inside your daughter. So the daughter dies at that point, I guess, because the kumeho spirit is, you know, inside the daughter. And the supposedly once... She kills a hundred men, then she'll return to being the daughter again. Um, but we don't actually know if that is the case or, 
you know, because she never actually killed. Uh, uh, Tick was supposed to be her 100th kill. She falls in love with Tick and decides that she doesn't want to be a monster anymore and that killing men, even though they're bad, doesn't make her feel any better. But I do think, you know, this is kind of another, again, forced romance to make us feel like Tick is better than what he is because we see him be really, really brutal and violent, disgustingly so, with these women and and with multiple women because we also see in the vision how he's pulling out you know the teeth of this woman that he's torturing and he talks about this in episode three about how he would torture people while he was in korea so we don't, we don't know actually how many victims tick had um but i think if this woman is able to forgive him for murdering her best friend and see the good in him then like we as the audience are supposed to be able to do that too. So she decides she's not going to kill Tick. She never actually, we don't know if she is able to actually turn back into a human, um, like the Madun said. Um, but we do know that she accidentally releases all her nine tails in the middle of her having sex with Tick. She's trying to stop it. She thought that she could control it. But obviously, like her mother said, you know, you're a kumiho, you're going to kill him eventually. Um, It's just kind of what your nature is. And she's kind of just been fighting her nature to be with him. And then she's not able to do it. Um, She gets all of her tails into him and she sees his whole life. Um, we see several visions and then she sees him dying, but not at her hands. And she like throws him off of her and is able to save his life. But we don't know if, you know, she's able to save her own human life by the end of the episode or how she'll play in. But she obviously does have a role to play coming up further, you know, in the, in the episode. Yeah. I don't think it's clear that Jenna is the actual woman's daughter. I think, I know how I read it was that this woman's daughter died at from whatever happened with the woman's, uh, with Jenna's mom's husband and that she made this deal with the shaman woman to kind of bring her back to life and that she would fully be brought back to life after these 100 souls. So, I, you know, I think that part of it for me at least is a little bit more murky um sure she has to get these 100 souls and and then i'm like why didn't she just claim another soul even though even though she was with tick like she could have just pulled one from the side but that's just me like i feel like she just kind of made a decision like i don't want to be this is monstrous, like murdering people and having their absorbing their souls and living with their memories inside of me. Cause she, she had all the memories of her mother's husband. Um, and you know, she had his favorite meal was like anchovies and like all these things floating around inside her. She had 99 different, I mean, it's hard enough to live with one man. He mentioned 99 inside of you is too much. She was over it. So I, I think it's, like a lot of things in Lovecraft is not completely clear about what exactly is happening. It leaves a lot to our, you know, interpretation and hoping that we can figure it out. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said the romance felt a bit forced and kind of like, you know, something to make Tick seem like a little bit better than he was. Um, I think that, you know, like the show has faltered a lot with like developing believable relationships um but you know i think that um it was really interesting in this episode because i think that you know 
we see Tick do these really horrible things. Um, and like you said, we also see that, you know, he's in um, his visions, like when um, Chia's uh, tails slash tentacles, like go into him um, that, you know, in his visions, he's like in his memories, he's like been torturing other women and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, like in a way, like the, the gravity of what Tick has done is just never like, actually given like room to breathe and like room to really land and i think part of that is because it gets wrapped up in kind of this uh this romance aspect of it which you know again like you know put uh places chia as you know the one who is in the predatory position when that's actually like entirely contradictory to you know like what korean women actually um what circumstances they were actually in vis-a-vis u.s servicemen and still are right um and so like i guess like in terms of story like it just kind of makes sense it's like you know like i get that you know this is tv like you know we often like turn to romance as a way to like force interactions and uh you know build relationships between characters um but it was interesting um in that you know like i think that there is like a very long history of you know uh representing colonial situations and then kind of using the institutions of marriage and romance as ways to sort of like redeem um, both like kind of the objective position of the colonized and um, the oppressive position of the colonizer. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in this context where like so much of the romantic relationship is like colored by the occupation that, uh, you know, like in a lot of ways it kind of creates this, this sort of sideshow that like, again, you know, like takes the stage in place of like so much of that is going on um, and so much of the context that it's actually operating in. So like, I don't know, like, you know, I think that, you know, this episode took a lot of like bold steps that, you know, I haven't seen TV do before. I think Misha Green definitely like had some great ideas. I can tell that, you know, there was like serious thought put into this, but I think like maybe there should have been like a little bit more, but like, I think that's also true for like the show in general. A little bit to me like i kind of wish that like someone had given like everyone involved in like another year just to like figure it all out you know and then we could like see uh, what we had then but i guess you know like um in hollywood you know they want to get content out and so you know you have to meet schedules that don't always like totally align with like actually making something that's like up to like the quality that like uh you would necessarily want so and I, I don't know if you you um if either of you have watched underground but i feel like misha did this trying to put women who have been victimized into a position of kind of some agency. We had a Journey Smollett's mother character on um, Underground. She was actually, she would use sex with her master to make him do the things that she wanted him to do, Um, like keep her son out of the fields and those kinds of things. So like I do... It's so interesting um, because especially, you know, like Brittany was saying, like so many Americans are intentionally not taught about the Korean War and what Americans uh, actually did in the Korean War. Um, so to have a situation where you kind of only hear about like the violence against Korean women, um, the sexual violence against Korean women um, during this war um, by Americans and by the Japanese um, in passing, but you kind of see, you know, Chia as the um, the sort of uh, enactor of violence. I don't know. I'm 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 hmm. I'm torn about it. Um, 
I, I feel like I understand the heart of behind it though, to like not see women being victimized, to see women kind of like, take, and as you mentioned uh, um, with um, Tegu being this like, kind of the spot of like revolutionary action um, to see a character like her taking back some of that agency and taking revenge on some of the men who have been victimizing. But yeah, I, I don't know. I can, I can understand why it would not sit well. Like I do see the intent behind it. I do. I do think that as a concept, it like has a lot of potential. I think that, um, you know, I'm not like, trying to just see it as like, oh, you know, like, um, this isn't like, absolutely like true to the way things happened, or like, um, you know, like, there was some kind of rule that was broken, and therefore, this isn't good. I think it's just more so that like, uh, I think, ultimately, like, really, for me, it just comes down to the execution of it. And I think it's just that, like, you know, you can, you know, you can see all of this, and then like, still, like, not quite like walk away with like the understanding of like what really happened and the gravity of it, not just in the sense of like these things happen, but that these things are still happening, right? Like the Korean war isn't over. It's ongoing. Um, you know, like the, it's, we're still in a legal state of war, every single party that was involved. Um, and so, um, well, by every single party, I mean specifically the U S um, and North and South Korea, because the U S um, has basically um, refused to like, comply or like compromise um on towards like actually creating a road to peace uh, which is could take a whole other hour of com- uh, conversation to explain um but all to say you know like um you just still very live and present in real things and i guess you know like um being a very rare piece of like u.s um, popular media that talks about the korean war i think that like you know there's a certain level of um there's a certain level of pressure on something like that, right? Because, you know, like this is something that's gone so um, under discussed and also re- uh, repressed as a conversation. Um, and so I think that like, you know, there's, there's a certain kind of like back to the basic sort of like review of, you know, uh, history that, you know, um, I think would have made uh, this episode a lot more impactful and ultimately could have made uh, maybe what the original vision was uh, with, you know, having this Kumiho character land much better um, but I think, you know, it just because it was rushed in so many other ways that it was rushed as like a story that, you know, we didn't really quite get that. Yeah. Now we just have to kind of contend with with what is on our screen. And so the ending of this episode, we see Gia throwing Tick off of her and saving his life and telling him that he's going to die, that she's seen it, that he's warning him not to go back to America. Don't go back home. You're going to die. I've seen it. And we don't actually see how he dies. Like there's a couple of visions she has of him um, kind of like all throughout his life, like right, you know, as she's kind of absorbing some of his like life force. We see him as a kid, you know, with his mom. And then he's reading by himself with the light on, like a little little nerd that he is. Um, And then we see like a really violent scene with his dad. We see him pulling the teeth out of I'm not, I'm not sure who that woman was that he was doing. We see him watching. He's not I mean, the one, you know. Not that it makes it better, but he's he's not the yeah. one pulling the teeth, but he's there. Yeah, and then we see him back in America, we see him in Florida. Um, he's in bed with some woman, but she's his same skin color, so we know that it's not Letty. 
So we don't know who this mystery woman is. But then we see him buying a bus ticket, going to Chicago. Then we see him being in all white. He's in a pool, like he's being baptized. Could be another ceremony, probably is another ceremony because we've seen a lot of this biblical imagery and uh, with the sons of Adam um, and the rituals and things like that that they um, go through. So he's probably going to get to that point. And uh, yeah, he ends up, I don't know, I guess at that point when she starts screaming out, I guess it's, it's him screaming out when he's dying. So she sees him being killed and warns him not to go home. And he's freaking out and he's just like, he's not trying to hear anything that she has to say. He's trying to get away from her. And then I guess, you know, because he breaks her heart and doesn't have anything to do with her, then the mom finally softens. She finally is like, you know, I'm going to treat her like she really is my daughter and comfort her because this man broke her heart just like I told her that he would. This is why I think like this is not her daughter this is sort of a resurrected form of her daughter because her mom tell her tells her that she doesn't have any feelings like she can't have any feelings and that's one of the things she says like you said I would never have any feelings I would never feel anything until I claim these 100 souls but I have this feeling for this man which is Atticus which I mean Okay. Again, <laughs> outside of Atticus's shoulders, um, I don't get why people are like, oh my God, I love this man. But like, you know, she falls in love with him even though she's not human. And her mom tells her like, how, how can you do this even though he killed your best friend? And to her mom, it's super strange that she just can't follow the program, kill a hundred dudes and bring my daughter back until... Jenna is starting to feel things which she never felt before. And Tick, for whatever reason, has been able to awaken these things for her to feel these things. And that's when the mom and the daughter, they embrace and then they go see the shaman woman. And then we get the whole scene with the with the fox, which was gorgeous, by the way. It was. It was very good CGI. But what did you think? Like, is she dead? Is Is the... Is the Camille, does that mean that, you know, the actual person is dead and this is like a shell with this spirit or like, you know, w- what did you take from, from how they were explaining this? I found the whole thing kind of confusing. Um, I also saw the episode one time um, and wasn't able Thank to. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think it's, I don't think it's clear. I don't think we no, can it's definitively not. say and I think that's what we keep coming back to, right? There's so many things that aren't clear. There's so many things that like are sort of like, why is this the case? And like, you know, from like, what is um, Chia's exact origin story to like, why would she fall in love with Tick? Like, not even just because like Tick as a character is like, not super great, but also because like, she watched him shoot her best friend, like in front of her, right? Yeah. And like, I just, I can't imagine... Like that being like a realistic, like accepted, like, you know, character development for anyone, right? Like, you know, like, oh, this man killed my best friend. I'm totally gonna fall in love with him now, right? Um, And so I think that's kind of like, that's kind of everything about this episode that's flawed that I guess kind of, that's what it all comes back to. It's these moments of like, I just kind of got to just call it like lazy writing almost, you know, like of where, you know, like there's just kind of these like leaps and it doesn't quite make sense or like these moments that aren't really quite earned, you know? Um, And I think that's where like, 
that's where the show as a whole falters. And that's where this episode falters for sure. So where do you think that we go from here? I guess we watch the rest of the season, right? Um, <laughs> I guess we'll just kind of like have to see how it plays out. You know, um, I get the sense that Chia, this is probably not the last we've seen of her. So she will probably come back again. We'll probably get a little bit more information about like how Kumiho works within this particular world. There will be other opportunities for her character to be fleshed out. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of other bold ideas. There may be a few other stumbles, but you know, that's going to, it's going to be the ride. It seems like so. Yeah. I mean, I know what I don't want to see. I do not want to see, um, Gia come back for the purpose of a love triangle. Um, I don't want to see it. I, I don't want Tick to have options of two women who are clearly more deserving than whatever he is capable of giving. But I do hope that, you know, Gia does come to America and there is some sort of alliance that can happen and that this, you know, this whole like global allyship like message does actually come across in these final episodes and that they all the marginalized people team up and take down this white supremacist force. I really hope that that happens. If that happens, I feel like there's so much about the show that I will be willing to forgive because I think that that's so important. We need to get back to Hippolyta and Diana. We haven't seen them in a long time. And I'm just like, we know Hippolyta, the last time we saw her, she was heading to Lovecraft Country to get answers about George's death. We know, again, from the trailer, that she is involved in some time travel. And I just want to see how that all plays out. And if we will like Tick in the end, because right now it's dark and hell is hot, to quote DMX. And I ain't looking too sweet. That is as good a place as any. Your perspective was amazing as usual. We learned so much. Thank you so much for all of our listeners. We will have Judan's piece reading Colonialism in Parasite on our website, blackgirlwatching.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at H-E-R-M-I-T underscore H-W-A-R-A-N-G. Before we get out of here, I just want to give a couple of shout outs to our listeners at wise underscore diva, who absolutely loved our interview with director Victoria Mahoney about episode four. She said it was like going to her own personal film school. Shout out to Sharon Lynn, whose husband is jealous of Tick's shoulders. And shout out to everybody who's hit us up on Twitter and Instagram and wherever and who is listening to our show. If you love Black Girl Watching, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to, especially Apple. And if you want to throw in a review, say something nice please and thank you all right we'll catch y'all back here same time next monday in lovecraft country have a good one guys i'm Brittany danielle i'm brooke obi and this was chuyun park black girl out Gee, I got something to say.